Welcome to this, the fourth of our podcasts here with Opening Up Cricket. Going for a slightly different approach today and I'm going to combine a little bit of what I do uh, as a day job, which is that of a history teacher, with the themes of the project around mental health. So I'm going to be taking us through a brief history of mental health and hopefully giving a little bit of food for thought about how things have changed over decades and centuries, but also how... In some ways, unfortunately, things have remained quite static in terms of attitudes and how people approach it. So I'm going to flip between a few different areas of mental health and mental illness and how they're depicted in the media, how illness is treated medically and how society has viewed the topic over a period of time. Um, Now, when we think of the term mental health, if you put that into Google then the first page worth of results, and indeed carry on clicking through, the same would be true, are generally negative responses. They will be to do with when mental health is in a state that could improve. There will be a lot of links towards things that are referring to where to get help in a period of crisis and examples of, of negatives and of illness. So I think that's a really interesting place to start with because our approach to mental health has entirely been, um, for a lot of people, through the negatives. And you sometimes hear people talking about mental health as if all it includes is negatives. So you might occasionally hear people say, oh, he's got mental health when they're referring to someone who has uh, a mental illness. When in actual fact, of course, we all have mental health. It's whether it's good mental health or or bad mental health. Or, of course, it's somewhere in the middle. Now, the term mental health, in in fact, is a relatively new term. It was the case that around about the mid-19th century, people would refer to what we now see as mental health as mental hygiene. And there was a guy called William Sweetser who came up with the idea of mental hygiene. And that, funnily enough, was largely based around the positives of mental hygiene, just like you would think of hygiene in any sense of being keeping things clean, keeping things healthy and in order. So we move from that perspective of mental hygiene, eventually it's replaced by the idea that we'd come up with now of of mental health. And, and as time goes by, there's a, a lady called Dorothea Dix who um, does a lot of work in terms of responding to the rising number of patients in mental health facilities. And the, the, the idea within the States, um, the United States, is that the, the term mental hygiene is slowly being replaced by mental health as time goes on. Now, the most important person, uh, and a lot of this comes out of, a, of, of America, is a person called Clifford Beers, who founds in the early 20th century Mental Health America, which is the National Committee for Mental Hygiene. And he writes uh, something which is very influential, A Mind That Found Itself. And what makes Beers particularly interesting is that he has lived experience within the asylums that used to operate to look after people who had mental illness. And what uh, Beers was looking to do, excuse me, was to try and improve treatments and, and ensure that people wouldn't be locked up because of a particular illness that they had, trying to move away from this idea that 
if someone has a mental illness, they're inherently dangerous because that's what the, the impact of asylums would be. If you lock people away and isolate them from the rest of the community, that does lead people to think that they are being kept away from everyone else because they potentially could cause a danger. So he opens the first outpatient mental health clinic in the uh, the US. What we also see, this term mental hygiene is largely abandoned and mental hygiene at times, later in the century, it becomes associated with the idea of eugenics and sterilisation. So a very negative perspective on, on mental health there. And as we reach post-World War II, mental hygiene is replaced by mental health due to the positive aspects that that's intended to cover. So if you look at health generally, if that's a standalone term, it would tend to be something which you can view both positively and negatively. Unfortunately, because of the experience of time that's passed, once you put mental in front of health, that does tend to then have a more uh, negative connotation to it. But the original intention of creating um, the term mental health rather than mental hygiene was to, 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 to put forward the positive aspects. And, and technical references to mental health uh, as a term have not really been found before that period of World War II. Um, you reach in 1948 the first International Congress of Mental Health, so moves forward to becoming something that is uh, seriously discussed across uh, countries that have advanced healthcare infrastructures. And there's an acceptance that a mental disorder is just one aspect of mental health. Much like physical health, there can be a range of things which you would need treatment for, you'd need support with, you'd need uh, help to get better. But say your physical health... When you're not at the doctors, when you're not seeking uh, treatment, for the most part, it will be it will be going well. And the same uh, is the case with mental health. Now, what we've had over all of the time that that, that there's been detailed history of, of mental health is that there's been significantly low rates of reporting conditions. It's much easier to measure physical illness and, and, and problems with physical health because they tend to, of course, there are still uh, plenty of occasions where people will be slow or reluctant to report physical illnesses, but there's a significantly low rate of reporting conditions. The Sachs Institute in New South Wales, Australia, did a lot of research into this. Um, and what we can get from this is that, that that low rate of reporting conditions, if people are not then seeking help, is that your emotions or your feelings or whatever term you want to use um, will largely be suppressed uh, and if there's a culture around uh, conditions not being reported for fear of judgment, uh, for fear of uh, isolation within the community, then that will just get worse by suppressing them. So if you think back to this time where Clifford Beers was, was talking about um, the, the Mental Health American National Committee for National Hygiene and his lived experience of asylums, there'd be a great reluctance within society to admit, as it were, to mental illness because of how you would be treated. Now, once that's moved away, the hope uh, is that, or was that, um, people would report conditions more because they don't fear being locked up for something which has just uh, happened to their health. But um, the legacy of the asylum system is that 
even in 2017, there are still examples, uh, plenty of examples of where people do suffer from a, a stigmatisation of mental illness. Now, if we go right the way back, probably to our earliest um, available recording of, uh, of mental health or, or mental illness, the ancient Greeks, who were ahead of their time in many areas, did in fact coin terms for melancholy, hysteria uh, and phobias. So although their their method of of medicine, the humorism theory, would be something now which is is not creditable, credible, sorry, um, this is the first uh, recorded instance of them uh, considering the mind. Um, and for those who are thinking, what is the humorism theory? It might be something you've studied years and years back in a. In a, in a history classroom uh, or indeed just something that's popped up on a documentary. This idea was that if there was an excess or a deficiency of four bodily fluids, this would then influence your temperament or your health. Um, and these ones would be particularly related to, to, to mental health, would be if there was an excess of yellow bile in your system, that would be something which would prompt aggression. If there was an excess of black bile, that would be something which could prompt depression, and that is to do with the uh, melancholic temperament that they, they started to describe. And um, if there was an excess of phlegm, this could lead in your emotions to apathy, uh, and that's the idea of the temperament of uh, being phlegmatic. So um, there are some things there where we would use terms, going back to the ancient Greeks, which are related to to mental health and to our emotions and our well-being. Now, now, what's interesting, going back to the ancient Greeks, is that even though we would now, like I've said, doctors wouldn't be talking to you about a, an excess of a particular humour or another, I think you would be looking to see a different practitioner if that was the case. But there was a recognition within that ancient Greek world that all humans had a unique humoral composition. So they developed the first holistic approach between mental and, and physical health they matched up physical symptoms with mental symptoms and they did have a genuine recognition that each person was different so you can't just apply the same terminology and, and terms to each person which is remarkable really considering how we would fast forward to uh, later periods in time and see that one of the problems in terms of stigmatisation around mental illness is that a lot of the time people will apply very blanket statements to people. Uh, the, the classic being, what does that person have to be depressed about? They're successful and, and so on. As we move forward, you have examples in the medieval Islamic world, Persia, Arabia, of um, description and treatment of disorders. So there is a recognition that the mind is something which can falter. Now, um, I must confess I haven't done a great deal of research on, on what those treatments were, but they were present within that particular period of time. Now, as we move forward to the Middle Ages, there are... This is probably the, the, the peak or, the, or, the, or the, the dip that we have in how bad treatment for mental illness is. There's private madhouses that are opened. The mentally ill would be frequently put in jail. Um, and the witch hunts that would go on at this time, people who were being pursued would perhaps just have been exhibiting symptoms of something that now would be very easily treated in terms of a, a mental illness. As we move on to the 18th century, asylum care becomes much more prevalent. The, 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 the kind of asylum that someone like Clifford Beers had interaction with. 
And but by the 19th century, as we, if you think about Britain in particular, a huge population growth as a result of the Industrial Revolution. People living longer, people having more children and living standards rising, although being very much uh, dependent on where in the country you lived and what class you were from. But this population growth means that there would be more insane asylums because uh, a greater group of people, there will be uh, a fraction of them which will be deemed appropriate to enter these asylums. So that grows and grows. And in the asylum, at this point, people who were who were present there were referred to as inmates. So there's a real criminal undertone to this. Well, not even an undertone, it's an overtone. You're being called an inmate, just like you would be if you were in prison for committing a crime which has been designated by the law of the land. Now, moving across to the 20th century, asylum inmates uh, are known as patients, and the asylums become hospitals eventually. So that very stark, brutal way of looking after, or indeed not looking after, people with mental illness does become a lot more humane. Although stories from these uh, mental hospitals in the 20th century would still be ones which we would look back on and, and, and feel very sorry for the people that had to encounter that kind of treatment. A real watershed moment is the aftermath of World War I, where we see cases of shell shock. And we also then see what we would now regard as post-traumatic stress disorder uh, into the 1930s. Now, people's impact, the impact of war and the cases of shell shock signify for us a change in how people look at mental, mental health and mental illness. The people who had gone out to fight in the trenches, who'd lived in awful conditions to fight for their country then returning and, and having an illness brought around directly from their experience of it, would, for, for anyone coming into contact with these people, um, prompt a, a lot of compassion and a lot of sadness, even though the nature of shell shock was woefully misunderstood and, and people would would think that people had lost their minds. And even, indeed, the term shell shock is not one that we would we would use today, but there was some more sympathy with regards mental illness as we move forward to that period. Um, in the 1960s, and, and this is perhaps key to the, the 1960s in many ways of uh, uh, looking at society, there is then a lot more discussion about what mental illness involves. Now note, pretty much everything I've mentioned so far is about mental health in terms of illness. There's little discussion, if any, on promotion of good mental health. We wait at this point until someone needs treatment, uh, whether that's a humane form of treatment as time moves on or one which is very punitive. So the conversation is still around illness and you get contributions in the 1960s from uh, particularly Thomas Saz. Now, I might have said that wrong. It's S-Z-A-S-Z. -S Apologies for um, anyone with the surname listening who I've mispronounced that for. He came up with a theory that mental illness was a myth used to disguise moral conflicts um, and a sociologist of the time, uh, Irving, I think this is Goffman, oh gosh, I'm awful at pronunciation, yes, um, mental illness was used to label and control non-conformists. So there is a real development in how people discuss mental health at this point. 
Again, though, not anything which would contribute towards a promotion of good mental health, just about how people would use labels, perhaps in the case of the sociologist's perspective, to control and to, um, and to put constraints around people. The process that, that we, we enter into in, in Britain and, and across the world around this point of the 60s onwards is deinstitutionalisation occurs gradually. Um, isolated psychiatric hospitals are phased out in favour of community-based mental health services where people would be treated for whichever illness or disorder largely within a community, not being hidden away and not being um, treated as separate from society just because they happen to have a particular illness. Now, I remember, in fact, from my childhood, I lived opposite um, a, a home which, which cared for people with, with mental illness. Um, and reflecting on that, uh, I must say that as a child and even going into my teenage years, that was a place which which filled me with a lot of dread or anxiety. I certainly didn't want to uh, to see what was behind the door and just little snippets and anecdotes from the community about uh, what kind of people were in there were were quite disturbing to it to a young person and looking back I think that was something which if that was how I felt about the people in there how would they have felt um, in terms of their recovery if that judgment was made on them without any kind of um, any kind of understanding. Now, I did have some brief interactions with with people who'd been uh, patients there, um, and and largely that was as a young person one which I'd reflect on as being uh, negative experiences, um, where a couple of people had got had got lost and were trying to to, to get some help, and they were trying to get in in our back door, and this just reinforced at a, a young age. For, for me, completely in a misguided sense, that um, these people perhaps were dangerous and they were put in that home because they needed to be looked after very carefully. Now, of course, I've had the benefit of quite a bit of education with regards mental illness as years have gone by and um, I really would like to go back in time, as it were, to, to, to find out a little bit more about the people who lived there, what their stories had been, how they'd come to have that interaction with illness and and really what they thought about living in uh, a facility or whatever the best term for it is um, at that point. But I digress. The, that, that aspect of community mental health services continues right through till today. And what we've seen a lot more of in the, the decades going towards the end of the 20th century were the, 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 the significant use of, of med, antidepressant medication. So more and more people who perhaps in the days of the asylum or in the days of mental hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, would um, would now be able to manage their conditions outside of that control. Uh, we also see lithium being used to try and um, uh, cut the amount of suicides that are there. And of course, the most um, recent and and really powerful method is uh, that of cognitive behavioural therapy, the talking therapies that have become more and more used as time goes on. And if anyone has been to a, a doctor regarding mental illness, uh, for, for example, if they've been exhibiting signs of depression, the three things that will generally be in the conversation are cognitive behavioural therapy, 
uh, some form of of uh, medication and then exercise but throughout all of this we really only in perhaps the last 10 or 15 years see that becoming at the forefront in conversations um, and again exercise is perhaps only mentioned when people are struggling which may well be too late and that has quite a difficult effect on people if you're saying to someone you're opening up to them that you're suffering with um, symptoms of depression and someone says to you well you just need to go out and have a run it's not particularly helpful now what we get as we go forward um, towards well into this century in fact is that a lot of the old attitudes towards mental illness and, and mental health persist uh, there was a study by Baylor University in America, 2008, so very recently, uh, which showed that some clergy in the US often denied or dismissed the existence of mental illness. Now, for a country like the United States, which is, which is uh, heavily religious, indeed uh, part of their presidential election campaigns will be, uh, you will have the, the, the candidates making comments on issues that are related to religion. It is a very public uh, a very a very public area of their their politics so in terms of society religion plays a huge hugely important factor and the amount of people that come into contact with members of the clergy who deny or dismiss the existence of mental illness that is really quite worrying um it's also the case that um the mentally ill however that is defined in china cannot legally marry so perhaps we throw back to that idea of mental hygiene and the sterilisation and eugenics. Well, they don't want the spread of that kind of kind of thing, which, yeah, in this this uh, this modern period that we live in, that uh, two countries, the two biggest economies in the world, have within them some very uh, concerning attitudes towards towards mental illness. Now, a question that I've always thought, um, and as I bring this towards a close. Why do we disengage with positive mental health? Why isn't that something that's discussed in the same way that positive physical health can be discussed? We have um, a rush for gym memberships at the turn of the year. We have big, big campaigns to get people playing sport. We recognise all the benefits of it. But is it that we disengage with positive mental health for fear of knowing too much about the negatives? If you start to tap in to positive mental health, you naturally have to compare to the negative if things go wrong. And this history of mental illness being treated with such discrimination and, and such harsh methods and attitudes perhaps does in some way make us not fully engage with the positives for fear of of what might go wrong now we've had in recent times and i can think just of the two off the top of my head some interesting and interesting is always a, a funny word to use it always has to be in italics or in inverted commas but these perceptions of mental illness in in mainstream media um, homeland if anyone has seen that really uh, well i think it's great um a, a tv show about um I suppose the war on terror, for want of a better term, where the lead character in that does have bipolar disorder. And I must say that having watched uh, just the first series, I, I would say that I didn't have a view on how the 
the character was portrayed in line with that their illness. I didn't feel that it was done necessarily particularly well, or I didn't feel like it had been done badly. So perhaps that's the the, the best that anyone can hope for. Given, like I've said earlier, everyone has different ways of interacting with their with mental illness should they they suffer from it. I remember again going back to my childhood without making this uh, a long stroll down memory lane. In EastEnders there was a a depiction of, I think the character's name was Joe, played by Paul Nichols, uh, who had schizophrenia. This would be back in the mid to late 1990s. And I don't remember any detail about that necessarily, but looking back I think that was quite a brave thing for EastEnders to do, to include a character with a type of mental illness which I think above all others is uh, misunderstood Um, schizophrenia is often something which people will if you ask them to think of words associated with it 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 does get linked to dangerous behaviour when in actual fact if you were to look at the evidence and the experience of it um, that's rarely the case so that was something in the past which, um, you know, all credit to someone like EastEnders and during their history they've managed to, to bring in, in, in lots of challenging uh, topics and, and, and themes. So that's, supposed just one example of it. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on mental health acts and, and everything like that. We had the Mental Health Act in 1959 where there was a, a distinction the distinction between psychiatric hospitals and and other hospitals was abolished. Uh, This was part of that idea that I've mentioned of trying to deinstitutionalise mental health patients. And this also defined mental illness as distinct from learning disability. Um, It abolished the category, which used to exist, of a moral imbecile. And this was incredibly damaging within the time that it was able to be used because this could be applied so vaguely to include, for example, a mother of an illegitimate child. Imagine that today, someone who's, uh, who's not married being able to be considered mentally ill because they are a moral imbecile. It seems like something that would be in a dim and distant past, but in reality, not that long ago. Moving forward, there was the 1983 Act which updated it um, largely to do with sectioning and that is still something which people associate with mental illness, the idea of when someone can be um, taken into care. Um, Once again in 1983, mental disorder was loosely defined, uh, not to say that that was to include the kind of the the awful anomalies like the the moral imbecile, but it it was the case that it was left loosely defined. And and when updated in 2007, there was an acceptance that there's more uh, a discretion than perhaps there might be in areas of physical illness, because after all, education and knowledge of mental illness has developed significantly amongst the professionals who work within that. So we've got rid of the lunatic asylums, but people would still use the terms mad, bonkers, nutter, anything like that you can think of. We can throw it back to... um, Bedlam. This is something which people would say when something is absolutely, you know, there's this complete disorder going on. Well, this is linked itself to um, the Priory of St Mary of Bethlehem. 1247 that was founded. 
the the state of bedlam, uproar and confusion comes from that. So it comes from this uh, these these people who've been looked after, who they were mentally mentally ill, um, and the treatment that they were receiving was woeful, and then led to more and more problems. Uh, the eighteenth century saw a trade in lunacy in terms of the private um, madhouses and so on being operated. But I'm looking to finish on a on a more positive note. The period of the Enlightenment uh, in all areas of society saw people viewing things in much more measured and informed ways. And at this point, disorders were recognised by those who were open to this Enlightenment and to more progressive thinking, was that the disorders would require compassion. And a key in that was that our monarch of the time, uh, around this time, George III, was someone who had um, prolonged interaction with mental illness uh, and because of the public's affection for him it became more and more uh, identified that illness was seen as something that could be treated and indeed cured whereas of course in the days of throwing people in uh, mental asylums and calling them inmates it would be that they needed to be punished and that could not be solved so this more moral treatment, this more idea around illness being seen as something to be treated and cured is, it was an incredible step forward. But we still had around that time a lot of what was considered to be women's imbalances uh, described as, as mental illnesses. And these would be things which would now, again, you would just associate with quite naturally times when mood would change in, in terms of the process of pregnancy and now um, postnatal depression. But people look back on that and said these were just examples of women being imbalanced and, and being inferior to men because they can't control their emotions as much. Even the act of a woman being disobedient could be used as evidence to show that women were um, were imbalanced and not emotionally mature enough to have uh, parity with men. Which, of course, of course, in 2017 we view as completely ridiculous. But... It was used very much like those sociologists in the 60s said. Sometimes uh, you can apply labels to people to try and keep them within what you consider to be uh, the natural or, or, or safe order of things. Now, as we finish, Hollywood has done very well over the years in depicting insane characters and people that are so memorable from, from film history. I would say, um, to po- focus on the positives to, 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 uh, in that area, that if anyone's seen a film called Black Swan, it was out in 2010, I think it was Natalie Portman that was the star of it, this managed to present, uh, within the guise of a psychological thriller, uh, eating disorders and self-harm in a way that was not to glamorise them, uh, to make it realistic now it's not something that in terms of eating disorders that i've had personal interaction with but but people i've spoken to have said yeah that this was this was more like it in terms of what it would say and and the idea of of this i this non-discrimination of mental illness someone who was seemingly successful who could still be affected by it very powerful within what was generally speaking a really good film as well Uh, and i haven't seen 13 reasons why the uh, the show on Netflix, but this centred around uh, the suicide of a of a young girl, I believe. I'd have to watch that to see 
how it portrays suicide but i think having something about it a feature a feature of numerous episodes that is well watched on a medium that many people have access to if done right can really inform the conversation and certainly take us away from media depictions that are negative which then invite uninformed comments the sun newspaper with the bonkers bruno headlines completely unhelpful more recently aaron lennon professional footballer just simply having how much money he earns a week in the headline when describing that he was seeking treatment for mental illness just goes to show that there is that prejudice which still exists and if that's being printed i'm not saying that people believe absolutely everything they read but that narrative which has been established over centuries where we're still really trying to shake off this idea that asylums and mental illness is not something which is uh, dangerous this just does keep reinforcing that it's something to to kind of distance ourselves from and and in the case of Aaron Lennon when the Daily Mail newspaper was was referring to how much money he was on that really did throw it back and say well this guy is a, a rich and successful he should not have mental illness which is completely absurd now what I'd be more interested in is the, the positive depictions of, of mental fitness and mental health. And uh, I'm quite uh, old-fashioned, maybe this is quite clichéd, but my favourite film of all time is Rocky. You might be laughing at that and thinking that I'm a, a cretin or a philistine, but one of the multiple benefits of Rocky as a motion picture is how this guy keeps going and his determination, his focus, and even when he loses within that, that, that fight in the first film, it's like he's won, and I know this sounds cliched and misty-eyed, but that's a huge thing for mental fitness, that what Rocky did was, he was the best he could be in that fight. Not everyone can be the best in the world, and okay, Rocky, in, in a dramatisation, I'm sure that boxing fans out there would tell me that there's no way whatsoever Rocky would have got that fight and so on, fine but it really was instructive to show us a really positive message Um, love that film anyway to finish John Hopkins University over in the States found in a study recently I think this was done within the last five or six years one third of all mental health news stories were linked to violence to other people one third so automatically a huge amount of stories will not have anything about positive mental health and of those other two thirds i would imagine that they are about the kind of sad stories but ones which don't involve violence so very limited amount of coverage for positive mental health and i know the way the news works we don't want to have a newspaper just saying from cover to cover oh everything went well today nothing to see here yes we want to get our teeth into a nasty grisly story but that runs counter this uh, one third of of stories with the violent element to them runs counter to the the reality the same university found that around three point three to five percent of violent acts were due to serious mental illness something doesn't quite tally up there and i think without meaning to sound negative to to finish that all that history of mental illness being so stigmatized and, and shut away and not talked about does still affect us today 
And the only way that we can change that is by talking about the positives more and normalising mental health and making it something that's part of your everyday life. That doesn't need to be reading journals or listening to podcasts like this, but it is just something where our conversations can and will make the ultimate difference so that in years gone by in years to come in the future we will look back on 2017 and hopefully say that was around the time that people began to change how they thought about mental health that's it i have gone on longer than expected if there's any comments regarding it please do leave them on twitter instagram facebook or you can email me at mark at openingupcricket.com thank you very much for listening